Brothers and sisters, we are now this evening continuing uh, a sermon series in the book of Joshua. And this evening we are going to look at Joshua chapter 3. If you're utilizing a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 179 in your pew Bible. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let us give careful attention to it. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, and all the people of Israel lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests, bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel were passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, as we open this particular text, we ask that you would show us our Lord. We ask that you would speak to our hearts concerning that which you would desire for us to know and grow in the image of our Lord and Savior. We ask that you would equip us so that we might do those works that you 
prepared for us before the foundation of the world. And we ask that you would do all these things in a manner that would fully glorify you for all to see and know that Jesus Christ is Lord, all to your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, seeing is believing. Those words are actually in Webster's Dictionary and are defined as an idiom used to say that when something unlikely is witnessed, the truth of its occurrence or existence can no longer be doubted. The Webster's Dictionary then goes on to provide the following sentence as an example of the usage of that short but pregnant sentence. I didn't think it could happen, but seeing is believing. In line with this, the state of Missouri, famously called the, the show me, is famously called the show me state. And that slogan is not official, but it's common throughout the state, and, and it's even on some of their Missouri license plates. Now, there are several accounts concerning the origin of that particular slogan in Missouri. The one most known is attributed to Missouri's U.S. Congressman Willard Duncan Van Diver. He served the United States House of Representatives from 1897 to 1903. And while a member of the U.S. House Committee on Naval Affairs, Van Diver attended an 1899 naval banquet in Philadelphia. In his speech there, he declared, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton and cockleburs and Democrats, and for the eloquence, neither convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri. You have got to show me. The other most well-known version of the show me legend places the slogan's origin in the mining uh, town of Leadville, Colorado. There the phrase was first used as a term of, of ridicule, ridicule and a, a reproach. A minor strike had been in progress for some time in the mid-1890s, and a number of miners from the lead, the lead districts of southwest Missouri had been imported to take the place of some of the folks who were on strike. The Joplin miners were unfamiliar with Colorado mining methods and rules and, and thus required frequent instructions. And thus the pit bosses began saying, that man is from Missouri, you'll have to show him. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, we have the account of Thomas, the apostle. After hearing of Jesus' appearance before the other apostles while he was absent, uh, he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. John's account goes on to tell us that Jesus reappeared to them eight days later, and this time around, Thomas was with them. Jesus, the text tells us, first greeted everyone, but then he immediately turned to Thomas and said, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. And then he said this, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now of particular note as it pertains 
to this exchange between Jesus and Thomas is the fact that Jesus didn't rebuke him for not believing. Instead, he provided him with that which he needed to believe and by extension to act upon. And please note, this would have been the same Thomas that would have already seen Jesus walk on water, feed thousands with two fish and five loaves of bread, heal the sick, predict his own death and resurrection, and on and on. The same Thomas was still in need of of having his faith fortified so that he could face the things which were to come, so that he could be equipped to do the works that God had proposed a purpose for him before the foundation of the world. And so as we move to our text, I would submit to you that that is the same thing that's going on here. The entire narrative moves from beginning to end towards the same end, that God's people by sight might have their faith increased and strengthened in their resolve to stand so that they might be able to face that which was ahead of them. You see, what was directly in front of them was crossing the Jordan. But beyond that, they still had lands to conquer, people to conquer, all sorts of things to to, to accomplish. And God knew exactly what they needed. And like Thomas, they, in the bosom of their parents' arms, witnessed God rain manna from heaven, produce water out of a rock, guide them by day and, and by night, kept their clothes and their shoes like new for 40 years and parted the Red Sea in their midst. But as God dealt with Joshua in chapter 1, knowing Joshua's frailty and his need to be encouraged, remember God encouraged Joshua with his promise, with a promise of his presence and telling him to stay in his word. And it's the same way that he did that. He is now moving from encouraging and equipping Joshua to doing the same with his people through what? Through his very acts that he's going to perform before them. And so now he deals with his people, providing them with what they needed for the task that lay ahead of them. And so the question now at hand is, how does God go about doing this in this text? And I would submit to you that answer, I'm going to answer that with three things. A call to worship, a call to witness, and an incomparable act. So first, a call to worship. The people set out from where they were in a place called Shittim and arrive at the Jordan where they temporarily lodged themselves before doing what could have been accomplished 40 years ago. That which they were trying to do now could have been accomplished 40 years earlier, but was not because of what? Sin. And so I would submit to you how or ask the question, how often do we principally go through the same type of trials because of our stubbornness and refuse to recognize and obey God's law or leading in our lives? So here we go on to hear that at the end of three days, the same officers that spoke to the people in chapter one, after hearing from God's chosen leader, Joshua, were again given instructions. So first, they were given instructions concerning their positioning as it related to the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to come back to that in my second answer or point to our question. 
Suffice to say now that the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God himself and his presence, was to be set in the most prominent of places among the people in front of them. I'll talk more again about that later, but now, as it relates to our first answer, I'd like you to notice the beginning of the words of instruction found in verse 3. In verse 3 we read, And commanded the people as soon as you see. Now those words, as soon as you see, carry the implication that they were to look for God. They were to anticipate having the audience of his presence. And thus Joshua follows that up in verse 5 with these words. Consecrate yourselves. These words should have been familiar to these folks because they saw their parents hear these same words in chapter 19 of the book of Exodus, right before God gave them his law. There in Exodus 19, 10 through 11, we hear these words. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. And in response to that, we hear these words further along in verses 14 and 15. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. Now we need to know, folks, that the outward washing of their garments was not really what God was after on Mount Sinai, nor was it what he was after here in our text. It represented a cleansing of the inner man, confessing your sin. It represented the disposition they were to have before coming before a thrice holy God. When Isaiah went before God in in chapter 6, and he saw the risen Lord. He saw the train of his temple, uh, the train of his robe fill the temple. You know what his response was? Woe is me before a thrice holy God. And so they were supposed to come before God this way, not flippantly, but in the manner that befitted the King of King, the Lord of Lord and of glory. A directed focus they were to have, prepare themselves in this manner, making every effort to come clean before the presence of God, again on his turn, not on their own. They were to come before him in reverence and in awe. And it is out of that context, a heart of worship, according to the dictate of God's word, that God shows up and reveals himself to his people. And thus, in our text, after the people are commanded to consecrate themselves, we hear this. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. So question, do you intentionally prepare yourself before you go before your maker, defender, and friend? We particularly spur one another on to do this before communion. And even do communion, we fence the table and say that if you're not right with the Lord, then don't partake. So in that area, we do that, and we are to encourage one another the more we see the day coming to spur one another on to good works, to be pure in heart before the Lord. Blessed are the pure in spirit, our Lord says. So do you intentionally look to be what God wants you to be as you come in his presence? Do you reflect on the fact that it is out of that context 
that God meets and equips his people. I'm not talking about saving us. I'm not talking about works righteousness. I'm talking about God working in and through us and around us to accomplish his purposes, to strengthen us as we battle the world, our flesh, and the devil. The second way God is going to equip his people in our text, moving right along, is a call to witness. And there's several things that God in this passage wants us to pay attention to, to see, his people to see, none less or greater than what he's going to do towards the end. It's all moving towards a climatic end with God himself being center to all things throughout the entire passage. But as I previously mentioned, the first instruction the people received pertained to the Ark of the Covenant, where it was to be situated at the front of the people, specifically a thousand feet in front of them, how it was to be carried by the Levitical priests and what they were supposed to do as they saw the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, their God being carried by the Levitical priests, they were to set out from their places and follow it. Here, let me again stress that it is important for us to know that the Ark of the Covenant represented God himself. And thus, here it symbolized his presence going before his people. We ought not go anywhere without God at the forefront. Here he was at the forefront. He was to be at the forefront. And to that end, the words Ark of the Covenant, or some variation of it, is mentioned 17 times in chapters 3 and 4. And by the way, 3, 4, and 5 are all sort of the same unit here. But 17 times it's mentioned. John Calvin and others, in their explanation of why the ark was, so, was to be so far ahead, and it, it says 2,000 cubits here, but it's a th- that, and that's about 1,000 feet, right? In their explanation of why the ark was to be so far ahead of the people, they assert that it was because God's holiness necessitated that distance. I, however, really like what Ralph Davis has to say or had to say concerning the distance and the abundant mention of the Ark of the Covenant, especially so because it it really fits with the context of the opening chapters that we've read here, particularly one and now this one. Ralph writes, a writer refuses to allow us to lose sight of it, that is sight of the Ark of the Covenant. Thus the Ark, sign of Yahweh's presence, notice he's using the covenant name, Yahweh, presence among his people, meets us at every turn, reminding us that it is Yahweh himself who leads his people into Canaan, who cuts off the flooding waters and holds them back as it were with his hands. The whole affair is Yahweh's feet, and the Israelites, though active, are still primarily spectators. Later on, he goes to say, my translation follows the order of the Hebrew text, which most naturally suggests that the reason for the distance from the ark is in order that the people can tell where to go and can witness the cutting off of the Jordan, something they could not do if everyone was closely following the priests and the ark. But this way all could see Yahweh's great deed and all could know the path to take. Now there's a second thing God's people are called to witness here. This as a means of equipping them for future conquests. 
Then that is the exaltation of God's vessel, Joshua. In verse 7, we hear these words. Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that you may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And how was this accomplished? Joshua will speak God's word, and God will sovereignly bring it to pass. Every jot, every tittle that Joshua says, remember when we talked about or when we looked at the first chapter and we saw that God told Joshua to meditate on his word day and night, not to move for it from the left or to the right. He was to stay walking in the light of God's word. And so here, Joshua is going to give the people God's word and God is going to sovereignly bring it to pass. And thus the people will know that Joshua is walking with the Lord. And so in verses 19 through 13, we hear Joshua saying, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Not listen to my words, not listen to how I feel, not listen to what I think, listen to what God's word says. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive up from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. That's a mighty task that they had before them. And God was the one that was going to do it. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel. Now, it doesn't connect that 12 men from the tribe of Israel doesn't spell out or Pull itself out right here. It moves on into the next chapter four, and that's where you're going to find out why these 12 men. But it goes on to say, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. The people will see all this stuff. They will see Joshua speak and it come to pass. They were, more importantly or greater still, they would see the Lord himself act in such a manner that there will be no doubt who is God. And they would have been reminded, by the way, of the passing of the Red Sea and the fact that God himself also did. The same God did that. And so Joshua spoke exactly that which God relayed to him. And now it was left to be seen if, if it would come to pass. And this brings us to our last answer concerning how God equipped his people for the things they were going to have to deal with in times to come. And it was through an incomparable act. But before I I go there to an incomparable act, I want to say that we have our Joshua. Our Joshua is the better Joshua. Our Joshua was also exalted. Jesus was exalted on a hill called Golgotha. Like Joshua, he spoke only that which he heard from the Father. He lived a perfect life according to the dictates of the Father. He lived, he tells us because of everything that he did, he accomplished the Father's will. His active and passive acts. God exalted him because of these things and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every tongue will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue will confess that the true Joshua is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we enter into our salvation through Jesus Christ, through the gospel, and we remain on this side of life, walking in the light of the gospel, completing or going forward in the purposes that God has called us to. There are things that we have to conquer that Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, but he's not out here with his hands doing it. He's doing it through his hands and feet, us. Us, you see. And so it is as we obey God's word, as we enter into our rest in Christ, on this side of life, we have work just like they had work to do. They had to go conquer all these nations. They had to deal with all the issues in the land. They had to build things, cities, all the different things that they were literally called to, that man was literally called to in Genesis 1.28 were supposed to, again, be worked through and in and through these people by God's power and sovereign acts, okay? And so God, again, is strengthening them. God is going to work among them. He's going to do something great in front of them so that they can know that God is the God of all power. That if God can do all the things that he's doing here, there is nothing that our God cannot do, Okay? And so an improbable act, if we look at verses 14 through 17, we see these words. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. So as soon as those priests, as soon as their feet touched the water, and now you have something in parentheses here. Now the Jordan overflows all its bank throughout the time of harvest. So what are you hearing here is that the Jordan was the fullest it could possibly be. Okay? You think of the most impossible thing that exists on earth and understand that our God can overcome that because he created it. Okay? And so it was overflow. It was brimming overflowing. And then the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down towards the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea were completely cut off. And the people crossed, passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Now, if you can tell me of anyone else in history that did something like this, I would be glad to hear it. If you could tell me anyone who came and caused it to rain in the days of Noah when it had never rained before, I'd be glad to hear it. If you could tell me of anyone that literally could do something like this, not once, but twice, and for that matter, any time he wanted, I'd be glad to hear it. But the reality is you cannot, because our God is an awesome God. Our God is incomparable, okay? There is none like him. He is able to accomplish all things, and he is able to deliver his people. Now, one of the things we, thought, we sort of think about, right, when we see this kind of stuff, we sort of put ourselves in these shoes. So we're thinking about walking across, you know, with just a pen in our pocket, right? These people had livestock. All sorts of, you name it, they had it with them. 
And the, the bottom of that of the Jordan isn't just some, it had weeds and, and everything else that you can think of. And then something would have to be marshy, you know, like when it rains and you walk through stuff, it's all sloppy. But here it is, they're walking on what? Dry ground. I mean, the more you look at this and the more you think about this, and the more you see how this is done, the more you have to say, wow, our God is an awesome God. And if our God, now put yourself in their shoes. If our God can do this, what can he not do? If he says that he's going to conquer all these lands, what is it that is too hard for him? Is anything too hard for our God? And therefore, if there's anything in our lives whatsoever, there is nothing that can literally happen to us unless our sovereign God allows it to happen. And literally what we have here in time and space is an actual physical representation or exercise of God's providence. We don't see this kind of stuff today. God moving like this in, in space and time. Our Westminster Confession defines providence as God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold direct and dispose and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Well, here much more so than what happens all around us all the time but it's not always readily apparent in our eyes. God's providence is directly on display for all to see and hear. And these folks in this day and age were strengthened by it. But listen, when we go through this book and we talk about Joshua, Joshua is the antitype. He might have done good things and he might have obeyed God, but he was a man. He was a sinner. But the true Joshua. You want to hear an incomparable act? Can anyone tell me of a man, any other man that died on the cross, that said that he was going to do it, and then rose on three days later? And then in the midst of the presence of other people watching, rose to heaven, and now is seated on the right hand side of the Father, alive and well. Can anyone tell me of anyone else who's done that in history, in time, or even come close to doing anything like that? That is the most incomparable act in history. Even Siri's agreeing. Here's what I found, Siri said. <laughs> and so, brothers and sisters, here again, I'm reminded, now I'm reminded as I close, of Jesus' word to the Apostle Thomas after he explained, my Lord and my God, after he saw Jesus, this so after physically seeing and touching Jesus, Jesus responded and said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, brothers and sisters, what God was trying to accomplish in, in equipping his people was not that they would be strengthened so greatly physically, not that they would have all wisdom, but he was trying to increase their faith. In him. The same way he tried to increase Joshua's faith and encourage him in chapter one, now he's moving to encourage his people. And so when you look 
at the evidences surrounding the cross and the life of Jesus Christ. You should be encouraged beyond anything. When you see the works of the Lord in your own life, and I can't speak for you, but I know I can speak for myself, and I look at what things God has done in my life and the fact that I'm now able to stand before you, that's almost, well, that's blasphemy. I was going to say almost close to the resurrection itself. <laughs> but I'm telling you, it's a miracle, you know? And so as we look and we see what God has done in time and in space, we too, as God was doing for these folks, should be encouraged, should be strengthened in our faith. And we'll see, as we'll see next week, as we look at chapter 4, God has provided us with tools to that end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. You have now brought your people to the rim of Jordan, of the Jordan, and you are now magnifying yourself before them. You've done the same in our eyes. We were not at Golgotha, but you've preserved your word by the power of your spirit. And we, by faith, know that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has accomplished the greatest thing that anyone could ever accomplish in this world. And we are strengthened in our faith and our knowledge by that fact. And so we ask that you would continue to give us, to feed us with the knowledge of our Lord, to grow us in the knowledge of all that he's done and all that he's calling us to do. The people saw that Joshua was exalted before them because he was steadfast in your word. Well, we know that our Lord and Savior stayed even more steadfast than anyone could, all of us put together. And it is by our faith in him then that we stand righteous before you. We ask in the light of that fact that you would keep us by the power of your spirit. Continue to encourage us as we need it greatly so that we might go forward accomplishing the things that you've called us to, all to the praise of your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.